Best-selling author and apologist Lee Strobel said, the third and fourth verses from John chapter 13 constitute one of the most outrageous individual sentences in the entire Bible. It's like a non-sequitur. A non-sequitur consists of two thoughts that don't seem to go together because on the surface those thoughts seem opposed to one another. A non-sequitur is a logical fallacy. Notice verse 3. This is John 13, verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and that He had come from God and was going to God. Meaning Jesus was aware that He had all things because He was also God. And He would soon return to His exalted stature as God in heaven. Then there's this incongruous conclusion to this sentence found in verse 4. Notice, Jesus rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. Jesus took onto himself the demeanor of a mere servant. And he started to perform a detasteful task that was considered so demeaning that none of his disciples would do it themselves. Jesus washed the feet of those twelve men. Most ancient personalities wore two basic garments. First, an inner garment called a coat or tunic. A coat or tunic. Most of the time, this tunic was made from linen material and went from the neck down to the knees. There would be a hole for the head and then holes for the arms. This tunic was the ancient predecessor to a large nightshirt. Um, the second garment was an outer garment called a cloak or a mantle cloak or mantle. The mantle was a large square piece of material ranging as large as seven to nine feet on each side. This mantle was wrapped around the inner tunic and then so as to keep it from coming unraveled, a belt-like piece of cloth or leather called a girdle was tied around the waist. That kept the mantle close into the person's body. So what happened was just <clears throat> before the Passover meal, Jesus' disciples are in a large upstairs room in Jerusalem, about to eat the Passover meal. Just before that meal, Jesus untied his girdle, took off his mantle, and then wearing just his tunic, he took a large bowl, a large towel, pardon me, and tied it around his waist. Notice verse 5. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Most ancient houses had large water pots sitting, standing just inside the front door. That would be the first thing one would see, are these large water pots, pots standing inside the door. And there was a reason for that. People in ancient Middle Eastern countries wore sandals, and most ancient streets consisted of dirt. Because someone's feet would be dirtied from even the smallest of journeys, a servant would wash someone's feet just moments after he had entered the house. That would be the first thing that happened. This particular account took place at the annual Passover celebration during the time of the spring rains. The streets of Jerusalem would have been muddied and even flooded in places, so the disciples would have had extremely dirtied feet. And because those men would be sitting together for some time, eating a meal together, those dirty feet would have given off an offensive smell. 
No one appreciates stinky feet, so these men needed their feet washed. But notice that because there was no servant present in this upper room, one of the twelve disciples should have volunteered to wash the feet of the others. That's what should have happened. One of the twelve should have got up and said, okay, I'll do this. But instead, the disciples had been arguing among themselves as to who was the greatest. Imagine that. So no one humbled themselves to do that. So this important Passover meal was about to start with everyone's feet still unwashed. And that was not part of custom. That was unacceptable. But it happened because each of the men were waiting for someone else to stand up and perform the task. Because no one would do that, Jesus filled a basin with water, and Jesus took off his mantle, he took a large towel, girded himself, wrapped it around his middle, and started washing their feet himself. To wash their feet was something that acted as a visual rebuke to those prideful disciples who sat there and did nothing. Those men were probably embarrassed at seeing Jesus doing that and didn't know what to say, how to respond, and just sat there in shamefulness and in silence. Except for one disciple who was never able to sit still, that would be Simon Peter. Verse 6, Then he, Jesus, came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Simon Peter protested and acted totally shocked that Jesus would want to wash his feet. That's because Peter didn't think the promised Messiah would do something that a servant would normally be assigned to do. For a superior to wash the feet of an inferior was totally unheard of in both Jewish and Roman culture. Verse 7, Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. So Jesus responded to him and said that at that moment, Peter didn't understand the necessity and meaning of washing his feet, but he would understand momentarily. And that was because Jesus used this foot washing experience as a visual aid. He used this as an object lesson in order to teach Simon Peter and teach us two important spiritual lessons. Lesson one is humility. Humility. If someone wasn't affluent enough to have multiple servants, then the least of those servants would be assigned to wash the feet of the guest. The washing of someone's feet was considered the least desirable task that a servant might be required to do. I understand that in Jewish households, even Jewish slaves weren't permitted to perform that function. But instead, it was something that non-Jewish Gentile slaves and servants were assigned to do. The first lesson Jesus taught his disciples is that he humbled himself to do the job of the lowest of slaves and serve those 12 men. One more time. The first lesson Jesus wants us to understand, and the lesson he taught those men, is that he humbled himself to do the job of the lowest or least of the slaves and servants, and serve those twelve men. Verse 12, So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, meaning he took, after he washed their feet, he took his towel from around him, set it down, then put his mantle back over his, uh, him, and sat down. He said to them, You know what I have done to you? 
Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. Verse 14, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Verse 15, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. I understand some people in our congregation have come from more liturgical churches. Uh, liturgical churches would be the Church of England and the Anglican Communion, represented in the United States as the Episcopal Church. Uh, Lutherans are more liturgical, uh, so are some Methodist, uh, some Reformed churches, um, and Catholicism is also liturgical. Liturgical services are more structured and more formal and incorporate some serious uh, ritual and tradition, and we, we can appreciate some of that. Liturgical congregations celebrate the Thursday before Easter as Maudie Thursday. Maudie Thursday. That means this Thursday, April 1, it's not a, I mean, I, it's April Fool's, but this is not a foolish thing. April 1 is considered Maudie Thursday. Maudie Thursday is part of Lent. In most Western liturgical traditions, Lent is a 40-day long liturgical observance that starts on Ash Wednesday and ends on Holy Saturday. Holy Saturday is just after Good Friday and just before Easter Sunday morning. That time, that entire length of time of Lent, is supposed to spiritually prepare the devotee to celebrate Easter at the end of that cycle. Lent might include praying, fasting, repentance, repentance, almsgiving, and self-denial. Understand, Lent is not a biblical mandate. Lent isn't a biblical tradition. But, that being said, it's not a bad thing to do. There is nothing intrinsically wrong about Lent, per se, if it is done from a biblical motive. I believe it is unfortunate most of the time. It's probably not, because most people from liturgical congregations see some salvific benefit in Lent, and there is none. Lent doesn't contribute to someone's salvation. But what is Maudie Thursday? Maudie Thursday celebrates this last Passover meal Jesus ate just before his arrest that night. Um, the word Maudie is from the Latin language and means command or commandment. And it comes from this specific command Jesus gave those men in verses 14 and 15. This command Jesus gave his disciples at that last supper to do as he had just done. Now don't misunderstand this command though. The particular example and command Jesus gave his disciples um, was not to wash one another's feet per se. Because washing someone's feet was not intended to be a transgenerational practice or principle. Some people don't understand that. The Grace Brethren denomination is a conservative evangelical denomination. Um, it has produced some outstanding theologians. It practices foot washing. Another smaller Baptist denomination also practices foot washing. I understand the Pope on Maudie Thursday. Uh, it is a custom. He will wash the feet of 12 poor people. Now, these denominations, I believe, 
interpreted this section to teach that we are to actually practice foot washing as an ordinance of the church. Uh, we as evangelicals teach the church has two ordinances, baptism and communion. But liturgical churches, some, 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 as I just said, some include foot washing. So congregants in these denominations that do these, that, that practice, wash, and, wash one another's feet before communion. And don't misunderstand, that's not wrong. God is not upset that happens. It's fine to wash one another's feet if it is done with a right heart attitude. But that's not what Jesus was teaching here. In washing the feet of these men, Jesus was teaching a principle and not a particular practice. One more time. In washing these men's feet, Jesus was teaching a principle and not a particular practice. And that's the reason we don't practice foot washing. The principle Jesus both mentioned and he modeled at that time was humility. In order to duplicate the function of a simple servant, Jesus had to first humble himself. And what he meant was that we are to be humble just as he was humble. That was the lesson he wanted these men to learn. The opposite of being humble is being proud. And the problem is that most of us are blind to the ugly pride that is inside us. And I'm speaking from experience. Sometimes we are too proud to admit to our pride. Let me mention a series of contrasts that might help us better understand the difference between someone's pride and someone being humble. Someone proud has a critical, sometimes hyper, fault-finding spirit and tends to, he can find fault in anyone and anything, he tends to overlook and or minimize, though, his own weaknesses and faults. Someone humble, though, has an ongoing sense of his own spiritual needs. He sometimes feels that even his repentance needs to be repented from, as Spurgeon often said. He has never gotten to the point he feels that he has it all together. Someone that is proud resists going to counseling because it might be perceived that he is inferior in some sense. Someone that is humble, though, will literally do anything he has in order to get help for himself. He's not too proud to admit he has a problem. Someone that is proud feels he just has to prove that he is right. He has to be right. And how people perceive him is most important. Nothing else matters. Someone that is humble, though, gives up the right to always be right. And he doesn't always have to win either. And it isn't all about protecting his image. Someone that is proud acts as though he's the center of the universe. No matter what it is, it seems it's all about him. Someone that is humble, though, feels it is better to serve than to be served. He feels the reason for his existence is for other people. The reason he exists, he feels, is for causes outside of himself. Someone that is proud has the driving determination to be recognized. He wants to be appreciated. He feels wounded if someone else is promoted above him. He, he's upset if he is overlooked. Someone that is humble, though, has a sense of his own unworthiness and is ecstatic that God would even use him at all. Humble people are team players and embrace the musketeer model, all for one and one for all. Someone that is proud is quick 
to blame someone else for his problems. And he is often unapproachable, and he is defensive if he is criticized. Someone that is humble, though, is quick to see where he is wrong in a situation. He also accepts constructive criticism with a humble and teachable spirit. Someone that is proud is often easily offended and has to be handled with extreme care and kid gloves. Someone that is humble, though, is anxious to forgive and anxious to overlook the offense that someone commits against him. Someone that is proud waits for someone else to come and ask for forgiveness. He waits for them if there's a misunderstanding or a conflict in a relationship. Someone that is humble, though, takes the initiative to go to that person, to be reconciled if there's a conflict. One author says he races to the cross to see if he can get there first, no matter how wrong the other person might have been. Someone that is proud can monopolize a conversation going on and on and on and on and on about himself. He constantly talks about what he did in the past. Someone that is humble has much more interest in talking about the person he's conversing with. Someone that is proud constantly compares himself to others in order to boost his ego. Someone that is humble, though, compares himself to the holiness of God and feels a sincere and desperate need for spiritual renewal. Someone that is proud is selfish and insists, I want what I want. And the subliminal message behind that selfishness is, I am important and you aren't as much as me. Someone that is humble, though, is grateful for what he has because he understands he doesn't actually deserve anything. And he will say thank you for even the smallest thing or favor. People, these are just some of the basic differences between pride and humility. The famous preacher from England, one of the one of the greatest expositors of modern times, Martin Lloyd-Jones, said that each morning he prayed the same prayer. This was the prayer. Lord, please, please keep me from pride. That's an excellent prayer. We should all start our mornings with that prayer. Just as Jesus humbled himself in order to serve his disciples, he instructed them to do the same thing in order to serve one another. And although we are some 20 centuries removed from this incident, he still expects the same thing from us. Jesus washed his disciples' dirty, grimy, smelly feet and then patted them dry with a towel, and he has passed that towel on to us. Mount Everest is the highest point on this earth, 29,035 feet above sea level. To put that into perspective, that's almost three times the elevation of Job's Peak just outside that window. Three times the elevation of Job's Peak. In 1953, Edmund Hillary was the first man to climb to the summit of Mount Everest with his friend and guide, Tenzing Norgay. These are both men. It was not long after that that Edmund was knighted and became Sir Edmund Hillary. In 1985, he was made New Zealand's highest commissioner to India, Nepal, and Bangladesh. Then in 1995, he received British Realm's highest award. He was elected to the most noble order of the Gator membership, and that organization is limited to just 24 individuals. He became one. Throughout that time, though, Edmund continued to climb. He climbed another 
10 massive Himalayan peaks. And one of those peaks was named after him. He was also one of the first humans to go to the South Pole. But in spite of all of his achievements and all of his honors, Sir Edmund Hillary remained a very humble man. One example of that was his climbing partner, Mr. Norgay, announced to the public that Edmund was the first one to actually step onto the summit at Everest. But Edmund heard about that. And he insisted that no, 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 he wasn't the first one. He said both men together reached the summit at the exact same time. He felt that his guide deserved that distinction just as much as he did. And then another example of that humility was something that happened on another trip to the Himalayas. He was spotted by a group of tourist climbers who recognized him and begged to have a photograph taken with him. And as usual, he obliged. Someone handed him an ice axe so he would look at the part of the mountain climber for the photo. He wasn't in climbing gear. He was just in street clothes, sort of. And so they gave him this ice axe. So, you know, it was a photo prop. And so he could hold it for the pictures. And just then another climber passed the group. And not recognizing the famous Sir Edmund Hillary, had no idea who he was. He thought it was just another climber. He approached him and said, uh, Sir, excuse me, uh, excuse me, but that's not how you hold an ice axe. Let, let me show you how. Now at that point, if we had been Sir Edmund, we would have probably felt insulted. We would probably react with some sense of anger encountered with a rebuttal as to how we didn't need a lesson on how to hold an ice axe from some amateur climber. And don't sit there all pious and sanctimonious. That's what we would do. And you know that. But that's not how Sir Edmund Hillary responded. Everyone stood around him in absolute silence as Sir Edmund offered the man the ice axe and let the man adjust it in his hand. And after he had finished, he then thanked him for his help and then happily went on with the photographs. It doesn't matter how experienced that other climber might have been. Even if he was special, probably wasn't. But even if he was, his greatness was diminished because of his intrusive presumption. Pride repels people. Don't forget that. Pride turns people off. Sir Edmund had proven to be special, and his greatness was enhanced by his humble and cooperative attitude. The late Bob Pierce founded the international relief organization called World Vision. Most people have heard of World Vision, massive organization. Near the end, Bob suffered from an advanced case of leukemia. But he went to visit a colleague in Indonesia before he died. He wanted to see his friend one more time. As the two men were walking through a small village, they noticed a small girl lying on a bamboo mat next to the river. Someone told them that she had incurable cancer and that she had just a short time to live. And Bob was indignant after hearing that. He demanded to know why wasn't she in a hospital. But his friend explained that she was from the jungle, 
and she wanted to spend her last days next to the river where it was cooler and so familiar. And Bob felt such compassion for this small girl that he got down on his knees in the mud, he took her hand, he began stroking it, and although she didn't understand him because of the language differences, he prayed for her. And afterwards she looked up and said something, and Bob didn't understand, so he asked his friend, what did she say? His friend replied, she said, if I could only sleep again, if I could only sleep again. It seemed the pain was so severe that she wasn't able to sleep. And Bob began to weep. And then he reached into his pocket and he took out his own sleeping medication. The ones his doctor had given him because the pain from his leukemia was too great for him to sleep at night. And he handed that bottle to his friend and he said, you make sure this young woman gets a good night's sleep. He added, for as long as these pills last. Bob was 10 days away from where he could get his prescription refilled, but he humbled himself. And as a spiritual servant, he put someone else's need above his own, even though it meant he had to endure 10 painful, long, and sleepless nights. That's what God has called us to do. We are to humble ourselves, and we are to serve people. Lesson two, second lesson, is forgiveness. In our discipleship course, we discuss this in more detail. I've mentioned this uh, not often, but some periodically in messages. In, in our course, we describe two basic classifications of forgiveness. And for those who just finished that course, this is familiar. This is extremely important. Unless we understand these two categories or classifications of forgiveness, we cannot understand forgiveness. It remains a foreign concept to us. The first one is called judicial forgiveness, and the second classification is called parental forgiveness. Let me go through them. Notice the definition. Judicial forgiveness is comprehensive. And once and for all, inclusive forgiveness from God, acting as a judge and results in the legal forgiveness of all sins, past, present, and even future sins. One more time. Judicial forgiveness is comprehensive. And once and for all, inclusive forgiveness from God, acting as a judge, and results in the legal forgiveness of all our sins, past sins, present sins, and even sins we haven't committed. Colossians 2, verse 13. And you being dead in your trespasses, sins, and the circumcision of your flesh, he, God, has made alive together with him. Understand, before salvation, we exist as a spiritual corpse. We are dead from a spiritual perspective. And then at salvation, we are made alive through Christ. So this is a salvation text. He has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all, not some, all trespasses, meaning sins. The exact moment we receive Jesus, we receive salvation. And part of that salvation package is we receive forgiveness in a judicial sense. That means in a legal and judicial sense, all our sins are forgiven, all of them. 
We are never going to suffer an eternal sentence as punishment on our sins. We are never going to hear the gavel pound against the bench in heaven's courtroom as Judge Jesus pronounces us guilty. According to Romans 8 verse 1, there is no condemnation for us. That's never going to happen. Because at salvation we are forgiven of all sin in a judicial sense. Now don't miss this. This judicial forgiveness is important because it secures our salvation. I believe in the permanency of salvation. I believe salvation isn't a question mark. It isn't up for grabs. It's not something we can have and then lose. Salvation is, I believe, permanent. And this is one of the reasons for that permanency. If we weren't forgiven in a legal judicial sense at salvation of all sins, then we would lose our salvation each time we sinned after that. And because we would then have an unforgiven sin on our soul, that would deserve punishment in hell, and we would stand before God condemned. We wouldn't have a chance. This judicial forgiveness happens once at salvation and never has to be repeated. And in this narrative from John chapter 13, that judicial forgiveness is represented through a bath. A bath, because to bathe means to completely wash our entire body. Judicial forgiveness means forgiveness in a legal sense, where God washes us, cleanses us from our entire body of sin. Second, there's parental forgiveness. Parental forgiveness, notice the definition, is forgiveness from God acting as a parent and results in the forgiveness of the individual sins. I need to add there, individual sins we commit after salvation. Forgiveness of individual sins that have broken our fellowship with God. Fellowship means relational closeness or relational intimacy with God. 1 John 1.9, J. Vernon McGee, the famous Bible teacher, who once pastored Church of the Open Door in downtown Los Angeles. He calls this the Christian's bar of soap. If we confess our sins, these are post-salvation sins, sins we commit after receiving Jesus. He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. How? In a parental sense. And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Even though someone has salvation, he is still susceptible to committing sin. We've all seen the bumper sticker, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. We aren't perfect. We do sin in an experiential sense. And the sins a Christian commits after his salvation interrupts his fellowship or interrupts his relational closeness to God. I've used this example before. Two individuals might be illegally married. And as Part of that marriage, that means those two are still related to one another as marriage partners. On paper, there's a marriage. So in a legal sense, both are still related as marriage partners. But if those persons are going through a separation, if those parties are estranged from one another, then they are no longer experiencing fellowship, no longer experiencing any relational closeness and intimacy to one another. The relationship between them hasn't changed there's still a marriage license that states they're still married to one another, but there has been a serious change in experiential intimate closeness. That same sort of breakdown happens to a Christian if he consciously sins against God. 
He is still related to God, meaning God is still his spiritual father, and he is still his spiritual child. That hasn't changed. That cannot change. But the experiential closeness that was between them is now missing. Sin has interrupted that intimacy. The sin that caused that breakdown between them has to be confessed to God. And then it is forgiven, just as a father forgives his son, and that closeness is restored. That's parental forgiveness. The forgiveness a parent extends to a child. This form of forgiveness can happen again and again and again as often as it is needed. I am sure I have received parental forgiveness thousands of times. Thousands. This parental forgiveness is represented in this historical account from John 13 through the foot washing, which was something that needed to be repeated on an ongoing basis as long as someone's feet got dirty, meaning as long as someone continues to sin. One of the reasons God has designed communion as an ordinance in the church is so as to cause us to interrogate ourselves so that we might confess our sins, so that we might have our feet washed, so that we might have parental forgiveness and retrieve that sense of closeness and intimacy to God. I want us to answer these questions. One, do we find it difficult to confess sin to God? Do we find it difficult to confess sin to God? If it isn't difficult, then answer this. When was the last time we made a spiritual confession? And what was that sin in particular that we confessed? Can't remember? Second, is our confession specific? Is our confession specific? Is our confession vague, ambiguous, and trite? such as, please God, forgive me for all my shortcomings. I have heard that so often since childhood. People would pray, and God, forgive us of all. What does that mean? That's Christianese. That means nothing. Nothing. Be specific. Name the sin. Actually, the word confess is from the Greek word homologio. Homo, meaning the same. Logo meaning something that is said. Homologio means we say what God says about our sin. We name it. We are specific. Third, do we keep short sin accounts with God? Do we keep short sin accounts with God? Or do we permit sin to just accumulate and accumulate and accumulate and go unaddressed and unconfessed? And fourth, are we willing to give up our sin for God? Are we willing to give up our sin for God? Or are there some things, some bad habits that are unacceptable, some destructive relationships that are unacceptable, some possessions that we idolize and shouldn't, are there some things we just don't want to let go of? These are important questions to consider in washing our feet through confessing our sins so that we might receive parental forgiveness. I read about a man that sold his house to a man that practically begged him for it. He had, he had begged him, literally, for the longest time. He wanted the house. Because of the reduced price, he gave this man an incredible price, and because of his serious hesitation to sell, the seller had a stipulation. This is strange, but this 
is the story. This owner would sell the house to the buyer, but he would maintain ownership of a large nail protruding from over the front door. Front door, above the door, into the house, the stucco, whatever, was a large nail. And the seller would retain ownership of that nail. Then after some time, this original owner wanted to buy back his former house. He missed his house so much, he wanted it, wanted it back. And as expected, the new owner was unwilling to sell him the house. The original owner made him a number of outstanding offers. I mean, offered him much more than fair market value for the home. I mean, phenomenal offers. But this man just continued to reject the opportunity to sell. Because of that current owner's stubbornness, the original owner went out, found the carcass of a recently dead skunk in the street, and he proceeded to hang that skunk carcass from the nail above the front door that he still owned. Imagine, dead skunk above the front door, unavoidable. Once the skunk carcass had dried out and the smell was dissipated, he found another dead animal carcass and hung it from the nail. And he just continued to do that and do that. And then he announced to this owner that he would not remove those stinking dead animal carcasses until this man agreed to sell him back the house. And soon that house became almost uninhabitable. It was an eyesore, a dead animal carcass above the front door and the smell was, would permeate the house and it became unlivable and so this family was forced to sell to the owner of that nail. The moral is this, Satan still has access to us as long as we hang on to even one unconfessed sin. Do we understand that those sins that remain unconfronted and unconfessed permit Satan to retain access to us? That sin might be bitterness. It might be a broken relationship that we haven't even attempted to reconcile. It might be a bad habit. It might be a bad attitude, as it has so often been on my part. But as long as Satan has ownership of even a small part of us, he still has access to all of us, to the whole of us which is one of the reasons confessing our sins post-salvation is so important. Verse 8, Peter said to him, Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. I don't think it is a wise thing to tell Jesus what he can or cannot do. I just don't think that's smart. But Peter did. It's probably not a surprise that Simon Peter was adamant and refused to let Jesus wash his feet. So Jesus responded, Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now that upset Peter hearing that. That statement Jesus made is that if Simon Peter refused to let him wash his feet, then he was essentially disassociating himself from Jesus. Peter didn't want to do that. And so being the high I personality temperament type, that he was. He did what most high eyes do in a situation like this. He overreacted to this situation. Verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, okay, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. 
So Peter heard this response from Jesus and started getting paranoid. You know, Jesus said, okay, then I'm not going to have anything to do with you if you won't let me wash your feet. He goes, okay, 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 Jesus, I get it, I get it. Don't stop at my feet then. Wash my feet and go ahead. Wash my hands. Wash my head. In fact, Jesus, go ahead. Wash me all over. Just give me a bath. That's what he wanted. I understand some of his enthusiasm here, but the problem was Simon Peter didn't need a bath in either a physiological sense or a spiritual sense. He only needed to have his feet washed. Look at verse 10. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, meaning he's clean everywhere but his feet. And Peter, you are clean but not all of you, meaning not all of you sitting in this room. Not all of you is clean from a spiritual perspective. Not all of you have had a spiritual bath. In ancient times, if someone had just had an actual bath, then all he would need after his bath, if he went outside, would be to have his feet washed. The reason it would be necessary to wash someone's feet is that people would often go to public bathhouses and wash their entire bodies. But then as they would walk home, the dust from the street would dirty their feet. That person then wouldn't need another entire bath, but he would need to have his feet washed. Translating this into spiritual language, Jesus said Simon Peter already had a spiritual bath. He had already received judicial forgiveness at salvation of all his sin. He just needed his spiritual feet washed. He needed parental forgiveness from the day-to-day experiential sins he might commit. Jesus said that Simon Peter had already had a spiritual bath. But notice, he said there was one of his original 12 apostles there that had never had a spiritual bath. And guess who that person might have been? Verse 11, for he, Jesus, knew who would betray him. Judas Iscariot. Therefore he said, you are not all clean. This phrase, you are not all clean, means that one of them had never had a spiritual bath. He had never received the all-inclusive forgiveness that comes at someone's salvation. And that one person is the one that would betray Jesus, and that we understand was Judas Iscariot. Judas was never clean in a spiritual sense. Some people have the idea, well, Judas, he was a Christian. And then he lost it when he betrayed Christ. No, he was never a Christian. He didn't have Christianity to lose. Judas was never clean in a spiritual sense. Judas had never been forgiven from his sins in a judicial sense. He had never received salvation. He was the ultimate imposter and fraud. He was the counterfeit of all counterfeits. He gave people the impression he was a Christian, but he wasn't. He still needed a spiritual bath. That is according to Jesus. The sad part is that if I understand the parable of the tares from Matthew 13, there's not a congregation in existence that doesn't have at least one of these bogus Christians as a part of its constituency. Jesus said that Satan would infiltrate the church with spiritual imposters and spiritual frauds, just like Judas Iscariot. Oh, it's probable, more than probable, that no one would actually want to betray Christ, but they would be a fraud, an imposter. They would pretend to be a Christian, but wouldn't be a Christian. I'm convinced there are people like that in this church. I don't know who they are, but I'm sure there are some. In summation, there are two important questions that we need to answer before we sit at the Lord's table and before we commemorate communion together. One, have you had a spiritual bath?
Have you had a spiritual bath? Meaning, do you have legal and judicial forgiveness from all sins? Have you received genuine salvation through Jesus Christ? Are you an authentic Christian? We have to start there. Second, do your spiritual feet need to be washed? Meaning you've had a bath, but your feet are dirty. The question is, has your fellowship and closeness to God been interrupted by sin? And do you need to confess that sin so that sin can be forgiven and cleansed in a parental sense so that closeness to God can be restored? The bottom line is this. Just how dirty are you? How dirty are you? Are you just sort of a mess all over? And you definitely need a bath? Or do you just have dirty feet? I want us to bow our heads. We're going to pray as we initiate the communion portion of our service. We're going to sing together after I pray. If you uh, feel more comfortable... Um, you may, during that song, slip out and go to the lobby and uh, get a pair of plastic gloves because we're going to pass the communion elements. And if you feel more comfortable, if you wear gloves, then please, please, please feel um, that that's appropriate. Please go do that during that time. Father in heaven, thank you for what we've learned. I hope it is helpful in preparing our hearts for communion. Uh, so many people just don't really give this the thought and consideration it deserves. Um, and I pray that we would. Uh, so we commit this portion of this service to you. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.